Book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. Our study will be in chapter 10 this morning, but we need to pull back just a little bit. Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 32. Levites are in the midst of this wonderful prayer. And they say, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us and our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all our people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have acted, you have dealt faithfully, we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness with which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today... And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we're slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. And they also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we're making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would make Your Word alive to us. Make it live to us. That we might live in it and by it and through it. That we might, even as we hear these words, digest and and take in something deeper, something greater, something everlasting. We invite, Lord, the work of Your Spirit this morning to breathe truth into our souls, even among us, those who are in distress, as well as those who may believe they're living comfortably, we pray, Spirit of God, that You would guide us and teach us and lead us into all truth. Lord Jesus, You said He would. You said Your Spirit would come and lead us into all truth. That's all we seek this morning. That's what we're asking for. Would You do so, Father, as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when you're asked to sign your name on a document, rather than someone saying, sign here please, what are you often asked for? What are you asked to give? You're John Hancock. I mean, here we are, 200 and some odd years later, and we're still asked to give our John Hancock, you don't have to be a student of history to know why, John Hancock, President of the Second Continental Congress, was the first among the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Other names on this famed document include Samuel Adams, John Adams, Robert Payne, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and even Button Gwinnett. Button Gwinnett, whose name, though unfamiliar to most, is still just fun to say. (laughs) Button Gwinnett. He's on there. These names represent a distinguished fraternity of 56 names from 13 colonies who gathered together to represent one nation, Fifty-six men who stood up at a crucial moment in history, putting ink to parchment, putting their names to paper in a bold commitment 
to a new experiment in liberty and in freedom. To give opportunity to a new people gathered in a new land. But as I thought about this morning, there's, there's some parallels here between that document and another document that was signed long before. This document is what I want to consider this morning. This time with 84 signers, not just 56. Verse 38 again says, Because of all this we're making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah, the governor, or Tershatha, that's the Persian name for governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And then you can continue reading on down all the way through verse 27. 84 names, 84 signatories. Button Gwinnett is not on here. He would come along later. But these 84 names of of priests and Levites and leaders who are representing all the people, putting their names on that document, saying, this is where we stand. This is our bold statement. This is our declaration. Nehemiah was the John Hancock of the signing. First one to lay his name down on the dotted line. And the rest followed quickly. It was the fall of the year, 24th of Tishri, 444 B.C. when this declaration was drawn up. Not a declaration of independence, however. This is a declaration of dependence. A declaration of dependence. Let me bring you up to speed. It had been a month of pure revival in Israel. A wonderful month. In fact, it's what I would consider chapter 7, 8, and 9, leading into chapter 10 of Nehemiah. This is the apex of the return of the exiles. They are at their absolute best, though they may feel at times their worst. They are most humble, most confessing, most open to the work of the Lord their God, more than any time since they come back to the land. They now are on their knees and on their faces before the Lord. This month began with a six-hour Bible study. I love that. Gives me plenty of breath and space to to do what I need to do this morning. Six hours. But that study resulted in a time of joy and celebration, even a return for the first time since Joshua's days. For the first time they returned to the Feast of Tabernacles. Because they found it in the Word. Oh, we're supposed to do this. And they went out and they gathered palm and myrtle and olive branches from all around Jerusalem and brought them in and they built these huts, these lean-tos, and for seven days they celebrated in those huts the Feast of Tabernacles, a reminder of God's protection as they journeyed through the, the wilderness. But then it was time to get back to everyday life, or so you would think. After the Feast of Tabernacles, after the solemn assembly on the eighth day, everybody heads back to their homes in Judah, But on the 24th of the same month, they're back. The people can't stay away. They all return to Jerusalem again with fasting and sackcloth, with dirt on them in abject humility before the Lord their God. Something is stirring. The word has been spoken. The hearts are being moved. And now the people are back. And they're confessing. And there's another six hours of Bible study, followed by six hours of worship, a 12-hour service in one day. And then in Nehemiah chapter 9, we have the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. Longer than John 17, Jesus' prayer there. Longer than any other prayer given. Nehemiah chapter 9. It is a prayer worth repeating and reading. Because in it, the Levites basically pray the history of Israel. Have you ever, have you ever prayed your history? They pray the history of Israel right up to the very moment of the prayer. You go through it and, and it, it almost at times reads like 
a fascinating history story. They recount everything along the way and all of their failure and all of God's goodness. We talked about this Wednesday night. Their guilt, His goodness. And it's just back and forth. They're guilty, but they look to Him and He is good. And He continues to be good. And as we said this past week, grace is not a new concept with the New Testament. God was offering grace to His people. In fact, grace to all mankind long before He ever put on flesh and walked among us. Because grace is God's nature. And so they pray this marvelous prayer. They go through it. And the conclusion we just read a few moments ago, it it is the spiritual apex. It is the high point. But this revival that is occurring here in Jerusalem, like all true spiritual revivals, was not just emotional. It was actionable. That's something to look for. If someone says, we've got revival, see what it's doing a year later, ten years later. The impact of the spiritual move, of the move of the Holy Spirit, is going to be lasting and changing and altering, not just instantaneous. And the people want to move to action. It sparks this desire to return, not just to the land, not just to the temple, not just to the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its wall, but to return in tangible ways to the Lord their God. And that's where we are at. Right now, in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people are saying, Yes, yes, Lord. Amen. We want to be where you are. We want to do what you want us to do. And so, this is their declaration of dependence. Dependence. It's a covenant of the people, by the people, for the people, toward their God. And that's what we're going to look at. Six things stand out in chapter 10 that I'd like to just point out to you this morning. I'm sure there are many more that you could study and discover on your own. But down in verse 28, it tells us, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord, and His ordinances, and His statutes. The first thing we see here is a declaration of determination. A new and a fresh determination among the people to walk in God's law. They are determined to do so this time around. We know what the history is. We know from the moment the law was given, even while it was being given, the people were down there sinning with the golden calf, with all manner of of vile things. And they would continue to violate that law and break that law. But they're saying, no, no, we are determined to walk in the law. You see, with the reading and explanation of the Torah, those first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, they had heard and received in the past month, they recognized how far off the mark they were. They realized that there was so much the Lord had for them that they were completely missing. The Feast of Tabernacles was not a heavy burden. It was a party for a week. It was fun. It was a massive Israelite camp out. Bring the kids. Bring the barbecues. Put up the olive branches and let's enjoy each other. And enjoy the Lord, the Feast of Tabernacles. They hadn't done it since they came into the land 400 years earlier. Because they hadn't been reading the law. Because it kept getting lost. It kept getting put aside. It kept getting ignored. And so even the good things, as well as some of the challenging things that God had for the people, they lost. But now they're back. They're determined. They recognize all these things by God's Word. Which is how it works. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3. 
Ezra is there, and Ezra read from the law before the square which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. Again, that's six hours. In the presence of the men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Down in verse 8, it says they read from the book, from the law of God, translating or explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Down in verse 18, It tells later on that he read from the book of the law of God daily. This is during the Feast of Tabernacles, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. So now it breaks into a Bible conference. The Bible teaching every day the law is open. Tell us more. Give us more. The people are hungry for it. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, six hours, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped to the Lord their God six more hours. What was it that that, that this was doing? Why were the people so captivated by it? Gang, they heard the word and now they become determined to walk in the word. That Hebrew word for walk, by the way, back in chapter 10, where they write down, we are taking on ourselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. The word walk in the Hebrew is halak. And it means not only walk, but it means to go after. It literally describes a manner of life. We're going we're gonna to have a lifestyle of being in God's Word, they're saying. This is going to be part of our daily diet, part of our moving with the Lord, part of our following, a manner of life. I can't even, I can't even find the words to tell you how much I believe that God through His Word moves us. Why is it that every week, week in and week out, we are just going verse by verse through the Bible? Why? Some of these books that you think, well, okay, great for them, but what about now? Why are we spending all this time? And there's a single, well, two verses out of Isaiah that I heard years ago that I decided to test. Isaiah 55.10 As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it my word that I send out comes back full there is an impact that the Word of God has that nothing else has in our lives. A way that, and I've talked about this dynamic so often, a way the Holy Spirit moves with the Word of God in, in tangent together to draw us closer to the Father, to motivate us and spur us on to declarations like this one of dependence. And they say, we are determined now to walk in your Word. And it's a determination that is clearly marked by obedience. Let me ask you a question. Are you obedient to the Word of God? Are you obedient? This really convicted me this last week. I teach the Word of God. I believe the Word of God. Love to read the Word of God. Am I obedient to the Word of God? If I find something in Scripture contrary to my lifestyle, am I immediately ready to change? If I find something the Lord says that is lacking in my life, am I immediately shifting to, to redress where I'm at, to align with where He is. 
How many of us walk in here week in and week out fully aware of our sin choices this past week but assume that since no one here really sees it, it's okay. We'll just sweep it under the carpet. I'm not meaning to be negative here, but I, I even said at our staff meeting this last week, I said, you know, and I was worried about this because I was thinking about these things, thinking about my own life and, and wanting, desiring, hungering to always be sanctified before the Lord. And, and I said to our staff, I said, I wonder if there are people just walking into the bridge living together and we don't know. And if they, weren't, if they didn't have to be here when we talked about marriage and the sanctity of marriage and what marriage means to the Lord, then, then how would they even know, especially today, today, gang, where there is not a, a generic morality across the face of our country? There's not. Anybody can walk in the door and assume that their lifestyle, though contrary to God's Word, is fine. Because even in the church, that's, that's the mentality. That's kind of our mantra now, is acceptance and tolerance. Come on in. Which we want people to come in. But I, I was really laboring over this, and Les just looked at me and said, you know, Rick, I think the Spirit can convict. I'm not sure that you need to worry about that. And I went, oh sure, holier than thou, whatever, Les, you know. <laughs> Get all spiritual on me. But he was absolutely right, and I had immediate peace. I thought, you know, that's true. We just keep doing what we're doing. And we allow God, by His Spirit, to convict. Because you know what God does? When He convicts, it changes us. If I sit up here and just talk down point after point of morality, just stepping away from the Scripture and just say, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, then people tend to feel guilty. And guilt doesn't really do a whole lot of good. You just want to shake it off and get on with your life. But conviction changes. And the Spirit brings conviction. But i, I got to go back to this, to you, each of us personally. Here's the issue. Are we, are you, am I obedient to the Word of God rather than to the ways of man? Am I willing to sign on the dotted line and say, Lord, I will be obedient to Your Word, Your ways? It's not enough to be part of a church that has a right theology, according to our thinking. It's not enough, it's not a matter of joining yourself to a fellowship that has set good standards. Yeah, I go to the bridge. Do you believe what's taught there, what the Word says? Well, not all, but I go back to, you know... Because I know when Jesus comes, I'll just say, yeah, no, I have my memberships at the bridge. We cool? He'll say, what bridge? (laughs) There's only one bridge between man and the Father, and that is Jesus. And no church can save us. We know this. No attendance can save you. No, No connection, no membership covenant, maybe that you sign with a church, can save you. That's not where it's at. Only God, by His grace, saves us. I'm talking about obedience to the Word here, gang, as something that practically changes us and washes us and cleanses us and completes us in Christ Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.22, he said, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, as we're watching happen around us now in mid-November. The flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. They made a declaration of determination. We are going to be obedient. We're not just going to hear the word, we're going to do the word. We're going to be obedient to the word. Secondly, we see a declaration of separation. 
separation from the world. Back there in verse 28, it tells us already these are all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. Look at verse 30. They declare, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We're going to draw the line. No more intermarrying with the peoples of, of other nations. And it's not because mixed marriage is a problem, it's because the paganism was a problem. Mixed spirituality is the problem. The declaration of separation. Now we're not, we're not talking about isolationism for us in the church, but we are called to be separate to come out from among. We're not called to hole up in our churches and just wait out the return of Jesus. Put a lock on the door. Don't let anybody know we're here. Just Christians. And if someone comes knocking, do you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Okay, come in. Shh. That's isolationism. No, separation means living differently and the impact is not just protective, it is also proactive. I've shared this, I know, before. In fact, a lot of these things are very familiar to us. But the reality is, it is not being like the world that attracts the world. It is being different from the world that attracts the world. It is distinctiveness that draws people to an interest in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Himself is so distinctly different than anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth. And the more we're like Him, the more different we are going to be. Becoming a person or a people about whom others say, there's something just different about her, about him. Something unique. What's going on here? The attraction is in the separation. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.15, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is quoting from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And the Hebrew word for holy, you may be familiar with it, it's kadosh. It means set apart. Now, the Greek word for holy is different. It doesn't just mean set apart. It does in some ways, but it's, it's more than that. It's interesting. The word Peter uses in 1 Peter 15, verse 16, when he says, Be holy, for I am holy, is hagias. Which was interesting to me, and we've talked about that hagias is that word that speaks of the saints of God, the holy ones, those who are set apart to Jesus, those who are connected to Jesus, a part of Jesus, those who will be caught up when Jesus calls us home, the hagias, the holy ones, the saints, and those who will return with Jesus when He comes back to righteously set up His kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says, May He establish our hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints, that is, His holy ones. If you want to be separated from the world when Jesus says, Come up here, then start being separate now. Make that declaration of separation. I'm, going to be, I'm not going to live the way the world lives. I'm going to be different. Verse 31. Verse 31 going on, they write, As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. Number three, a declaration of recognition. They are now going to, they've they've determined, they've decided we're going to give recognition to the Sabbath. We're going to give place to Sabbath once again. To Shabbat. 
in recognizing the significance of Shabbat, the Jews were not going to go about buying and selling on that day. I went to school in Abilene, Texas. Amazingly, even then, it was in the mid-80s, even then, the stores and malls all closed on Sunday. I hated that. I did. You know, I mean, Furs was open, the cafeteria, and all the churches, you know, had to get down there to beat the Baptists and Methodists, get there before they did, you know. Get them out of line. And you, you go to my church, you, oh, you're one of those other denominations. Well, there's a place for you right back there, dude. And so all the churches would go to the cafeterias, but all the stores were closed. You couldn't walk the mall on a Sunday afternoon. You couldn't go shopping. You couldn't go buying. And I just thought, that is so archaic. Now I kind of think, boy, that's not a bad idea. Shutting down commerce one day a week. Recognizing the Lord in that day. And that's what was supposed to happen in Israel. This was law. This goes back to Moses. The the Sabbath gang, well, you may have heard the, the phrase that it's not the Jews who have kept the Sabbath, but the Sabbath has kept the Jews. And one of the defining characteristics that maintained their faith over the years was Sabbath. Once a week, they stopped. You know, people from time to time say, you take communion every week, doesn't it get old? Can you imagine Sabbath? Every Friday night, put out the tablecloth, put out the dishes, everything ready, everything clean, people come in, you begin. We have the prayers, we have the supper together, we Shabbat. Until 6 o'clock on Saturday, stop the work. Every single week. Kind of old, wouldn't it? Well, it kept the Jewish people a people across the years. It's mentioned 170 times in the Bible, the Sabbath is. Why? Is it just about a good Saturday nap? You know, taking a little break from the world? Is it a pause for religious observance in the middle of busy schedules? No, it's not. It's far greater than that. The Sabbath, my friends, is a shadow of the substance, which Paul tells us is Jesus. The shadow portrays Jesus. The Sabbath portrays Jesus. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect of a festival, a new moon, a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He is not only Lord of the Sabbath, as He said He was, He is the Sabbath. He is our rest. He is our peace. He is our comfort. He is the place, the person to whom we go. He said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The people are in distress. What do they need? Go back to the Sabbath. Because in Sabbath, you find peace. The question is not, do we give place to the Sabbath as Christians? The question is, do we give place to Jesus? Because He is our Sabbath. Ironside wrote the following. He said, Can our business affairs always bear the test of His eyes that are as a flame of fire? Do we have one weight for testing sacred things and another weight for what we call secular affairs? May it not be that right here is the reason for our leanness that we don't recognize Sabbath in our business lives. That we don't recognize Jesus in the way we function in the world outside of Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or small group Bible studies. That we compartmentalize Christ. My friends, giving place to Sabbath, giving place to Christ our Sabbath, means that once we come to Jesus, we don't do business with the world that denies our rest in Him. Verse 31, going on. They add something to this. They say, we will forego the crops the seventh year. 
will forego the crops the seventh year. That's why they went into captivity in the first place. They didn't forego the crops in the seventh year. They ignored the seventh year Sabbath. 490 years of ignoring God's command to let the ground lie fallow. Leave it until through the entire seventh year. And you can come back the eighth year and start again for the next six years. And then you stop. And you take the seventh year off. And you let the land rest. Is God green? Is that why? He's kind of a land lover? You know, is that what this is about? Or again, is there a bigger issue at stake here? I was thinking about this, and the reality is there's one thing above all others that the Lord would cultivate in our lives, and that's faithfulness. Wouldn't it be love? Well, faithfulness brings about love. The one thing He cultivates, desires to cultivate, is faithfulness. Number four, they make a declaration of cultivation. Ironically, a declaration that they will not cultivate the land in the seventh year. They will let it lie. Why? Because it nurtures faithfulness. Because it grows trust in the Lord. Your Bible students know the law of the Sabbath year was about, again, allowing the land just to lie resting and fallow every seventh. No working the field, no bringing in the fruit of the land. It was a year off. How could a farming people survive a rule like that? How would farmers in America do it if we suddenly passed a law and attached it to the health care bill and said, (coughs) every seventh year, American farmers may not farm their land. There would be an outcry. How can we survive if suddenly we are not farming the land every seventh year? Exactly. That's the point. How could you survive? The Lord says, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me to bring in enough in the sixth year to cover you for the seventh and the eighth while you replant before you actually start to reap in the ninth. You're going to have to trust me. And they went, yeah, thanks, no thanks. And they worked the land and continued to work the land. He said in Leviticus 25.20, if you say, what will we eat the seventh year if we don't sow and gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year it will bring forth the crop for three years. This is my promise to you, God says. When you're sowing in the eighth year, you can still eat the old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. This was not about the land. It's not because God was an environmentalist. Oh yes, He cares about His earth. But the point is He cares about His people and He wanted them to learn to trust Him. It was about cultivating faithfulness and the same thing is true spiritually for you and me today. Would you like more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Now, I I think you could hand this to anybody, and I love the immediate yes, (laughs) because that is what, you could give it to anybody, Christian or not, and say, hey, would you like more love in your life? Oh yeah, that'd be cool. How about more joy? Hmm, sounds good. Peace? Would you like peace? Oh, I like peace. Yes, I would love some peace. Can I have that? How about patience? Yeah, I could do with that. Kindness? Oh, kindness would be good. And goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you like more of this in your life? Here's the key. Be faithful. If you be faithful, He will bring fruit. If you will just remain faithful to Him, He'll bring the fruit in your life. He will provide it. And it will be more than you can imagine. Faithfulness. A declaration of cultivation. And continuing at the end there of verse 31, they also say, that we're going to forego not just the crops, we're going to forego the exaction of every debt. We talked about this last week. It's a declaration of obligation. 
refusing to exact interest debts from one another. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this, but just to remind you that the Lord has one obligation for us, one obligation with each other, and that obligation is to love. Romans 13.8 Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And so we aren't about holding things over each other's heads. We aren't about saying, hey, you wronged me, you got to make it right. We're not about saying, I got this over you. I know this about you, and if you don't do what I want you to do, I'm bringing it up. No. No interest. Don't exact anything on another person. Owe nothing except to love. By the way, this was interesting. Clark Donald came up, and Clark's a banker, has been for years. And we were talking about usury last week. Usury, meaning exorbitant interest. Do you know that usury in the banking world up until uh, somewhat recently, usury literally meant 12%. And that's exactly what it was, that they were charging each other 12%. Because 12% was considered then exorbitant. And so 12% in the banking world, when Clark started not too long ago, was exorbitant interest. You hear about the little lady in Florida who uh, Citibank sent her a letter saying, we're taking your credit card rate up to 29%. (laughs) Usury! Anyway, we come now to the sixth and final term of this declaration of dependence. And it's the rest of the chapter. And it's a declaration of prioritization in the household of God. A declaration of prioritization in the household or in the house of God. Watch this. Verse 32, we also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Exodus chapter 30, God gave that law. Only in Exodus chapter 30, it was half a shekel. Here they're saying we commit to a third. Why? Well, they were struggling. Remember, they're in recession. So it's, it's still tough. A third was still, you know, something, but not quite as much. And they felt, you know, for the poor among them and for the struggle they were all in, okay, we'll, we'll go with a third. You don't see God upset about that, by the way. You don't see Him come flying in and go, wait, a third? I said half! What's the matter with you people? <laughs> no, He doesn't. Okay. You want to commit to a third? Let's go. Interesting. Going on, the, uh, they're going to give this for the service of the house of our God, namely, verse 33, 33 for the showbread. Continual grain offering, continual burnt offering, Sabbaths, new moon for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so they might bring it to the house of God according to our fathers' households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. And to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. That When they brought the firstborn of the sons, they didn't leave them there at the temple. Okay, good luck, kiddo. See you later. It's been a great few days. No, what they would do is bring the firstborn and dedicate them as kind of an overarching dedication of all their children to the things of the Lord. And they would do this for the priests who are ministering in the house of God. Verse 37, We will also bring the first of our dough. (laughs) I like that. Bring the first of your... You could do that. Our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites, for the Levites are they who receive the tithes, 
in all the rural towns. The tithe here was about paying the Levites. It was about providing for them so that they could do the service of the house of God. All the rest of this was to maintain the service of the house of God. The tithe is above and beyond. It's on top of that so that they could do the work that needed to be done. Verse 38 says, The priest, the son of Aaron, and all pastors ought to read this verse, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. It's the tithe of the tithe. What do you mean? The Levites subsisted, they, they, they existed off of the tithe of the people, but they themselves were also required to bring a tithe. I was one of those pastors years ago who said, why would I tithe? <laughs> make any sense to pay me and I'm paying the church back? No. I'm going to keep it all for me. The Levites paid 10% of what was given to them. They were required, just like the people, to trust the Lord just the same way. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain and of the new wine, of the oil, to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, here's the important sentence underlining the whole thing. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Absolutely amazing. If you put all this together, this is the same people... These are the same who are struggling under the weight of famine and taxation and recession, as we read last week in chapter 5. These are the people who are struggling to pay a 10% usurious interest to their more wealthy brothers who are holding it over their heads. Now they're making a new declaration. Guess what that declaration calls for? If you add it up, it comes to the equivalent of about 23 and a third percent of all of their income was now going back to the Lord, not including a personal peace offering if you wanted to bring that. And remember, this is a little bit less. Originally, the law of Moses called for about 28%. It's funny because we say, oh, I'm not going to tithe like they did in the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, if you were going to tithe like they did in the Hebrew Scriptures, it would be 28%. Or in this case, now it's down a little bit, 23 and a third percent. You read this and you think, well, wait a minute, are these people nuts? They couldn't pay 12% and now they're literally doubling that amount. That they're going to pay out to, to maintain the house of God? Is this religious fervor just leading them out of the frying pan and in the fire? Have you ever made a commitment to the Lord in passionate moments? You know the foxhole prayers that men have made in war? Get me out of this, Lord, and I'll be a priest. I love the show MASH, and then there was an episode uh, recently where there was a guy sitting there and he called Father Mulcahy over and he said, Father Mulcahy, I, 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 need, I need some help here. I made a commitment to God that I would be a priest if he got me out of this, and I'm headed home and I don't want to be a priest. <laughs> These people now are learning dependence. 23 and a third percent to the Lord. It's doable, even when 12% to a heavy-handed landlord is not. Why? Because the Lord provides. Because the Lord takes care of us. You know what's interesting? Through this all, the prophet Malachi is in Jerusalem. Malachi is there at this time, and he is prophesying to the people. Listen again to what he says. You've probably heard this before. Listen to it in context. The Lord speaks through Malachi the prophet in Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. 
No wonder they're making the declaration in Nehemiah 10. We have, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And the Lord says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This verse changed my entire perspective on giving. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts. Now I'm not bringing this up to talk about tithing this morning. Remember the subtotal of Nehemiah 10 was like 23 plus percent. The primary issue and Malachi's issue and Nehemiah's issue and the Levites as they're praying this, the issue is dependency on the Lord. And by the way, that is the issue in your giving. However much you have determined to give, the issue is dependency on the Lord. It's the seventh year not planting and not tilling and not cultivating, but trusting that God's going to bring it. It's writing the check and saying, I know the Lord's going to provide. I don't know how, but He's going to do it. Dependency on the Lord, not on yourself. Not on myself. See, there are two ways we can live this life. I can live working it all out and working my tail off. And saying, I am going to provide for my family, or I can depend on the Lord to do it. Well, Rick, I work hard and depend on the Lord. Okay, good. I don't have that kind of energy anymore. (laughs) When a person depends on the Lord, his house becomes a high priority. Let me say that again. When a person depends on the Lord, his house, God's house, becomes a high priority. The higher my priority on the household of God, the greater my dependency on Him. What do you mean? Listen again to this verse. We say it all the time. Matthew 6.33 Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The more I seek His household, the more all these things are taken care of. The more I, and I know it's frightening, I know it's scary, I know it's radical, the more I give up, the more He's going to provide. The more I trust, the more He's going to carry. The more I lean into His household and the things that He calls us to that are important to Him, the more He's going to take care of all the other stuff that I am so worried about right now. Seek first His kingdom. 233 years ago, 56 men gathered to sign our Declaration of Independence, considered by some to be one of the grandest documents ever written. How's our country doing with it today? (laughs) Oh, there are conflicting views. There are are those who would say, well, it was a great document, but we need to rewrite. We need to make some changes. We need to do something different now. And there are those who would say, no, 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 I am a strict constitutionalist. What was written is law, is of the Lord. Through Thomas Jefferson. Well, we're not here to debate the outcome of our country. You can watch Glenn Beck or something else if you want to do that. But how about in Israel? 84 leaders gathered together, 444 B.C., to sign a document declaring all of these things, their dependence on God. How did they end up doing? Spoiler alert. 
I'm going to tell you the end of the book of Nehemiah right now. If you want to wait until the movie comes out this Wednesday night, you can, you can just close your ears. But according to Nehemiah chapter 13, we discover the people go back to intermarrying with the pagan nations. We discover they are busily engaged in buying and selling on the Sabbath. And we discover they have been neglecting the house of the Lord in short order. So disappointing. You know? Declaration of dependence, Lord! We trust You! We are with You! It's easy to make declarations. Dependence is where the challenge is. Actually walking out the fact that... Do you realize, if you're a Christian sitting here this morning, you already made a declaration of dependence. You said, Jesus, I accept You as my Lord and my Savior. You are now declaring your dependence on Him. And then we spend the rest of our lives, often like Israel, faltering from that dependence. But that's what we declared. I will be yours. I will listen to your law. I will follow your teachings, your ordinances, your statutes. Not so they save me, because I am saved by your grace, so I I will do anything you want me to do, walking in that grace. I will be dependent on you for my every meal, for my very last breath. I will be dependent on you, Lord. When did it fall apart for the people? Chapter 13, verse 6 is interesting. It says, During all this time I was not in Jerusalem, Nehemiah says. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. Here's what happened. As the book opens up, as the beginning of the story hits us, Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem to set things in order, to rebuild that wall, to secure the people. And all of that led up to this great declaration of dependence in chapter 10. Then he goes away for a season. What happens? It all falls in. Then he comes back. And as the book closes, we find Nehemiah once again working to reestablish righteousness, to set things in order and right. You see the pattern? You see, Jesus came to Jerusalem to set things right, to offer a security to people. Through his death and his resurrection, he made it possible for anybody to be right before God and dependent on the Lord for all our needs. And then he left. And he went away for a season and things were a bit dicey in the world. But my friends, just as Nehemiah returned, Jesus is coming again and He is going to set it right. Oh, how He is going to set it right. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and He will reign as King and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In His days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, And this is His name by which He will be called the Lord our Righteousness. So if you're concerned with the state of the world right now or the state of things, don't worry. He is going to make it right. In the meantime, in the meantime, we have made a declaration of dependence. And there is a difference in our declaration than there was in the people's declaration. You see... The people made the declaration with Nehemiah there. He left. It fell apart. When we make the declaration, well, Jesus put it this way, John 15:5. Apart from me, you can't do anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's good news. Because unlike Israel, our comforter never goes away. Our Nehemiah, his name means comforter, our Nehemiah is still here. When you make a commitment to be dependent to the Lord, He is still here. Jesus says, after a little while, John 14, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me. 
Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he's talking about his Spirit. That he leaves with us so that when we declare dependency, we can walk in dependency. Not by our own power, but by His Spirit living in us. I had a lunch with Don Coglin this last week. Don, here this, this hour, maybe, I think he and Emily are coming next hour, but we'll say that to make... Oh, there's Emily. Hi. There you are. Where's Don? Is, huh? Choir practice. Oh, okay. Well, good. We'll talk about him. Don't tell him what I'm about to say, okay? He's <laughs> sitting right here. Don and I had lunch. I had a great time, and I really enjoyed just, just talking with him and listening to him. And, and he said something that, that tickled me. He said, you know, Rick, I've noticed that you and Les are really trying to get people to understand and accept the work of the Holy Spirit. I've noticed lately, especially, really been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. And, and I, 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 I stopped for a minute. I went, really? Huh. Really? That's interesting. Because there... there there's no behind-the-scenes push here to Pentecostalism. <laughs> you know, we haven't had a secret meeting and said, okay, we got people coming now, we've lured them in. <laughs> now, now we're going to get going. Now we're going to start surreptitiously getting people zapped by the Spirit of God. And then it was that Don said this, and I love this. He said, you know, I believe when we give our lives to Jesus, He gives us all of His Spirit we will, never, we will ever need. We don't ever need more of His Spirit. But, we need to give Him more of ourselves. Wow. See, this is the wisdom that comes with walking a few years. We don't need more of His Spirit. He needs more of us. We need to give up more of ourselves. And as we give that up, the Spirit who is already in us floods into that new place. That's what we're talking about. A declaration of dependence. It doesn't get any more practical than this. The key, gang, to living for Him is living in Him. Relying on Him. Absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit of the living God. The Spirit of Jesus. As Paul said, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you. The hope of glory. And Lord, it is Your Spirit that we are so thankful for. We see how the people made a great declaration with Nehemiah and Nehemiah left and their example is gone and it all falls apart. And throughout Scripture and throughout history, Lord, we have seen this happen again and again and again. And Lord, i got to be honest and confess, in my life I've seen it happen again and again and again. And the only reason, Lord, I'm realizing that it ever happens is when I deny or quench your spirit. When I ignore Nehemiah in my life. And so I'm praying, Father, I pray for myself personally right now that I would give up more of myself to your spirit. More dependency on you, Father. I'm in a place in my life right now, Father, where I need to depend on you like never before. Father, I have brothers and sisters here. We are gathered here as a fellowship filled in this barn people who need the same dependence that You offer. We need to be broken, Lord, of our independence 
For there is no, no place for independence among the citizens of the kingdom. Make us a dependent people trusting You, leaning on You, knowing You're with us, coming to You constantly, Lord. And guide us in our walk. In Jesus' name, Amen.